Hey friends, uh, welcome to Virtual RUF again. Um, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Sammy. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. And we've been doing a series this semester so far on the seven deadly sins, just thinking about how sin works in our hearts and lives. Last week we looked at lust. Uh, tonight we're going to look at anger. And to do that, I'm really going to read three different passages, um, two New Testament, one Old Testament. So here's the first from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And then listen to James chapter 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce or bring about the righteousness of God. And then listen to that Old Testament prophet Micah chapter 7 verses 18 and 19. Who was a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Let me pray for us, and I want to think for a little bit together tonight about the sin of anger. Let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you that you love a people like us. You care for us. Uh, You know what is best for us. You work all things, even bad things and hard things, for our good. Father, we thank you that we can bring our sin to you because we know that you have taken care of our sin in and through your son, Jesus, and his cross. So, Father, I pray tonight that you would be the one who searches our hearts. Uh, Lord, anger can look different in our lives. Some of us uh, have more explosive tempers, and others of us have more inward anger that maybe shows up in bitterness or even depression. So, Lord, I pray that as we think about anger and we think about what your word has to say to us about it, that you would be the one uh, that that works in our hearts, that by your word ministers to us in just the ways that we need tonight. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we've been using Taylor Swift's folklore to kind of go through our series. I realize I forgot that in in the sermon last week. But tonight, here are the lyrics from Mad Woman. What did you think I'd say to that? Does a scorpion sting when fighting back? They strike to kill. You know I will. You know I will. What do you seeing on your drive home? Do you see my face in the neighbor's lawn? Does she smile or does she mouth you forever? Every time you call me crazy, I get more crazy. What about that? And when you say I seem angry, I get more angry. What's interesting when we think about anger is we live in a culture that on the one hand is angry all the time. Uh, all we have to do is hop on Twitter or the comment section on your parents' latest political Facebook post, and we see it. Cancel culture invites us to be perpetually outraged about something. But on the other hand, we aren't angry enough. When we think about racial injustice, racism, systemic or personal, the way it still affects our world in deep ways, or you think about sex trafficking that's happening even as we speak, not to even mention poverty or corruption, where is our anger toward that? So on the, on the one hand, we're always angry, we're always outraged, and on the other hand, we're never quite angry enough. And what I want to do tonight is kind of think about this question is, what does the Bible have to say to us about anger? Uh, is there a place for anger in the Christian life? And how do we deal with our sinful anger? 
And the way that I want to do it is actually four headings. Uh, the first is I want to think about the problem of anger. Second, I want to think about the power of anger. Third, I want to think about the promise of anger. And then lastly, I want to think just practically, some practical kind of steps and advice about how to deal with our anger. So let's first start with the problem of anger. And this is where we go with Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul in Ephesians, he immediately sets up this important distinction that we have to grasp because he tells us to be angry, to be angry and do not sin. But he tells us to be angry. What does he mean by that? He's saying that to be a Christian, we should be so in touch with the injustice and the sin that is happening all around us and in us and to us that it makes us deeply angry. Uh, This just came home to me last night. My wife, Alyssa, was telling me about a situation on the school bus in Richland 1, the school district that my kids go to, and it's just come out in the news that there was a little girl, a kindergartner, who all last year was riding the bus, and an older boy on the bus was abusing her sexually. He was grabbing her butt. He was pulling her head in inappropriate places. She was trying to tell the bus driver that it was happening, but the bus driver ignored her. Thankfully, there was footage, video footage of this happening, and so now there's this big uh, lawsuit between the parents of this little girl and the district. And as my wife was telling me this last night as we were going to bed, what did I feel? Uh, What do you feel when you hear that? What we should feel is the anger that God feels when he sees someone being taken advantage, a little girl, in that way. And so Paul is starting with this place saying if we're not angry, there's a problem. Because if we're not angry, it means our hearts are either so hardened by sin that we just don't feel the weight of it anymore, or that we're so cynical that we just don't care anymore, or better yet, that we're just so selfish and self-involved that we just don't even see anything that doesn't affect us. But what I want you to see is that Paul is drawing this crucial distinction between what we're going to call righteous or good anger and sinful or bad anger. Righteous anger or good anger means that I'm outraged by anything and everything that angers God, that moves and affects him. It means I'm angry at sin, both in myself and in others. It means I'm angry at injustice that I see happening in my community, in my my dorm, in my campus, in my world. Sinful anger or bad anger means that I'm only outraged by what affects me, what bothers me, what frustrates me, what inconveniences me, what makes me look dumb, what makes me feel out of control. And typically, it's pretty petty, and typically, it's pretty vengeful. And the problem of anger is, is that kind of anger, sinful or bad anger, is what most of us experience most of the time. Think about this. When was the last time that you got really mad, whether you showed it or not? What were you really mad about? Sinful anger is disordered. I love the way that Tim Keller talks about it. He says it's disordered in three ways. First, it's disordered in its cause. Think about it. Why do I get more angry when I lose to my son at Madden or lose at NCAA football or lose any kind of game than I do about a friend who's been sexually assaulted? It's disordered in its cause. But second, it's also disordered in its proportion. Uh, Does the person who cut me off in traffic as I was on the drive here, do they really deserve my wish that they would die? Do they really deserve the anger that comes out in my road rage? And it's also thirdly disordered in its goal. Good anger 
wants to destroy the foolishness in the child, but bad anger, sinful anger, wants to destroy the child. The problem of anger, I was thinking about one of the, one of the I think, the funniest episodes to me of The Office is toward the end. It's that episode where Andy's got the new ringtone, um, and it's just driving Jim crazy. And so if you remember that episode, Jim takes Andy's phone, and he hides it in the ceiling. Andy's uh, this whole time is trying to figure out where his phone is, where it's going. And I think about it because we see kind of two forms of anger there and the problem of anger, that Jim's selfish anger kind of shows up in the form of passive-aggressive pranks, whereas Andy's real anger comes out in a way where he needs anger management classes. But that's how it goes for us. The problem is that we don't get angry at the right things. We don't have good anger. We have bad anger. Righteous anger, good anger, is focused on what offends God, and it is good. But sinful, bad anger is focused on what offends me, and it leads to more sin, revenge, bitterness, lashing out. So first, the problem of anger. But then second, think with me about the power of anger. And this is where we go with James. This is why James tells us that the anger of man does not bring about, does not produce the righteousness of God. Because sinful anger, the anger of man, it does something else instead. It has the power to do real lasting harm, if not physically, then emotionally and relationally. So if righteous anger cares about things being made right, being made whole, uh, righteous anger cares about things being restored and ordered in a way that pleases God, and that's what it means that righteous anger does bring about the righteousness of God because it cares about what God cares about and it hates what God hates. But sinful anger, bad anger, leads to the destruction of everyone around us. If righteous anger leads to the flourishing of everyone around us, sinful anger leads to the destruction and downfall and detriment of everyone around us. Another way we could say it is, biblically speaking, righteous anger is part of what leads to shalom, when God will make all things whole, will make all things right again, when things will finally be fully at peace with him and with each other and in our world but sinful anger leads to Sheol, which is death and hell itself. Um, years ago, there was this column. It was called a Dear Ann column in the newspaper, which RIP newspapers. But in this column, uh, Ann was answering the question of how to deal with uh, a, a little boy's temper tantrum, temper tantrums. And this one reader uh, was shocked by what she said and her advice. And here's what she wrote to her. She said, Dear Ann, I was shocked at your advice to the mother whose three-year-old had temper tantrums. You suggested that the child be taught to kick furniture and get the anger out of his system. My younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. Mother called it letting off steam. Well, he's 32 years old now and still kicking the furniture, what's left of it. And he's also kicking his wife, the cat, the kids, and everything else that gets in its way, gets in his way. Last October, he threw the TV set out of the window when his favorite team failed to score and lost the game, and the window was closed at the time. The reality is that whether our anger is more like a crock pot that's always kind of simmering underneath but rarely lashes out or bubbles out, or it's more like a ticking time bomb where we're always about to go off on someone, the reality is that anger, what James is telling us, is that anger has real destructive power in our lives. The way that I was thinking about this is the last time that I truly, truly wept was two summers ago. Uh, we had gone to see my dad in Atlanta, 
And we were processing just our family. The thing that you have to know about my dad is that his dad was a very angry man. And the way that it came out, it wasn't physically, uh, he wasn't physically abusive, but he was always verbally just laying people low and cutting them down. And it really shaped my dad. Uh, you, if you know my story at all, you know part of how it shaped him is he ended up in, in drug addiction. And I think he would say a lot of that was dealing with the wounds from his own angry father. And there we were, and I was processing this moment that I had as my dad left our family, and I was trying to you know, understand what had happened. I remember this one day, my grandfather, his dad, picked me up from school, and I remember climbing in the back of the station wagon and just fuming with anger because the thought that I had was if you weren't the way that you are about my grandfather and his anger, my dad wouldn't be the way that he is. And then I started to think as we were processing this conversation about my, my anger, my own anger that often comes out at my son. And I started to think about, thinking about just my family, the way that anger has played out over now three, now four generations. Anger has incredible power to shape us, to damage us, uh, to harm us. And some of us have watched it wreak havoc through entire generations of our families. There's great power in our anger either for great good if it's righteous anger or for great harm and destruction if it's sinful, bad anger. And so what do we do with all of this? And this is where I want to talk about a strange thing that I want to call the promise of anger. Because the way that we typically deal with anger is like this. Take a time out. Remove yourself from the situation. Think happy thoughts. Pray. Remember the love of God. And those are all good things But what I want you to see tonight is that the healing of our anger actually comes from a surprising place. What we have to do if we're ever going to be fully healed of the anger that we struggle with is we have to bring our anger in touch with the anger of God. All right, here's what I mean by this. Is God angry about what I'm angry about? A lot of times we're going to find that our anger is sinful anger, bad anger, and we need the Lord to graciously show us that it's less about what that person did or didn't do, and it's far more about the idols of our hearts of either being in control or being liked or being in power, and our anger then becomes a place to repent and believe the gospel. But there are times, too, where we have to see that the good anger of God, the kind that longs and moves to destroy injustice and sin and evil, has in it a promise, and that promise is that God sees He cares, he is there, and there is a day coming where he will fully and finally deal with every injustice that has ever happened in our world. I've always loved the way, because sometimes when we think about the anger of God, it, it trips us up. How can this God of love also be a God of righteous anger? No one has put it better in my reading than Rebecca Pippert. Here's how she says it. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships? Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. 
God's wrath, his anger, is not a cranky explosion, but it's his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And to that I say, thank God that God is not indifferent to the injustice of the world, to the sin that has so damaged our hearts and lives. He has deep anger over what our sin causes and does, but the cause, the proportion, the goal of his anger is for our good and for our healing, which is why Micah in Micah 7 tells us that he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And in that steadfast love, he is taking the cancer of our sin, including our bad anger, and in his compassion, he is trampling it, and he has trampled it underfoot and cast it to the depths of the sea. The way that I like to think about it, it's a powerful image, God trampling our sin in the dust of the ground, him casting it into the depths of the sea. He doesn't settle the score. He settles our sin. He settles it deep into the ground under his serpent-crushing feet. He settles it deep into the depths of the ocean floor, drowned in the sea of his grace. Ultimately, Micah is telling us about the coming cross of Jesus. And the reality is is we, we mostly talk about the cross as the place where we see most clearly the love of God for us, and that is true. But do you see, too, that the cross is the place where we most clearly see the good anger of God that doesn't turn a blind eye to all the sin and injustice that has destroyed us and our world, but instead seeks to deal with it finally and forever? The Apostle Paul said the cross is the place where justice and mercy kiss and meet It's the place, we could say, where good anger and deep love for angry sinners meets. It's the place where the Lord, in his good anger, doesn't destroy sinners, but instead he destroys our sins through the death of his Son. Another way we could say it is that the Lord, instead of exploding on sinners in anger, he takes that anger upon himself and he absorbs it. He doesn't overlook it. And he doesn't explode in us, but instead he takes it upon himself at the cross and he absorbs it that he might forgive us and heal us. He doesn't settle the score. He settles our sin. Uh, If you've been around RUF for very long, you've no doubt heard me say this before, but one of my favorite movies is The Iron Giant. It's a 90s animated movie that feels strangely more for adults than it does for kids. If you know the story of that movie at all, it's a little boy, Hogarth, who's grown up in the 60s uh, with a single mom in a small town in America. And it's at the height of the Cold War between Russia and America. And Hogarth, as he's out kind of playing army one night in the woods, this strange thing happens. He hears this crash at the electrical plant, and he goes to see what it is, and he finds this iron giant, this huge metal robot. And he ends up kind of saving the giant's life, and the two of them begin this really strange and sweet friendship where Hogarth, this lonely, struggling little boy, finds this friendship with the Iron Giant. But at the very same time, the U.S. military and this one crazed, angry general in particular has heard word of this giant robot from space that they're pretty sure is a Russian spy. 
And so they start kind of doing an investigation, trying to figure out where is this robot. We've heard reports of it. And they finally get to Hogarth, and he can hide this giant no more. And the way the movie builds is this crazed, angry general is bent on destroying what he believes to be this Russian giant. And as the scene builds, he calls in all kinds of military power, tanks and planes, and he even calls in a nuclear missile. And as they're chasing the giant into the town square, this angry general, without thinking, hits the, the, the button to fire this nuclear missile. And the whole town is gathered watching this spectacle. And as the missile goes into the air, the giant looks at the people of this town, and he looks at his friend Hogarth. And as the missile is flying into the air, the giant himself begins to fly into the air. And just as we reach the, the, the very almost to space, the very upper reaches of the atmosphere, the giant tracks down this missile. And just as he takes it to himself to explode into a thousand pieces, he smiles. And then he takes this missile and he, he takes it to himself and he absorbs it. And he explodes into a thousand pieces. And in doing so, he saves Hogarth and the people in this town. And every time I, I see it, my kids make fun of me because I just tears start, start streaming. Because I think it's a beautiful picture of Jesus. Jesus, who didn't despise the shame and the pain of the cross, but with joy went to the cross to absorb the anger that our sin deserves, that we might be healed that we might be forgiven. I love the way that the old uh, English poet George Herbert used to say it, love is that liquor sweet and most divine that my God feels as blood, but I as wine. So what do we do? Last thing I want you to see is just a little bit of practical advice with how to deal with anger in our lives. And just three kind of points, thinking about practically what do we do with our struggles with anger. Here's the first. The first is simply to confess your anger. Don't suppress it. Don't express it. Confess it to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters who can point you to Jesus. Chances are they know you're angry, so we might as well talk about it. So first, confess it. Second, confront it. People have said, you know, lots of people have said that, that essentially anger is like a check engine light in our hearts where, where, where when we feel that anger and it's about to come out, it's a good place for us to check our hearts. Why are we so angry? And really, it's a chance for us to deal with most likely the deeper idols of our hearts, the places where maybe we feel out of control or the places where maybe we feel uh, ashamed or embarrassed or dumb and we lose what we feel like is approval or places where we just feel you know, lonely and uh, you know, misunderstood. But it's a, it's a place for us to confront our anger and see what's going on deeper in the engine of our heart and the third thing is to check our anger at the cross. And what I want you to see is that your anger matters to God. He can handle your anger. It's what so many of the Psalms are about is David expressing anger of what he's experienced and he's taking it to the Lord. And when we check our anger at the cross, a couple of things happen. First, maybe we realize it is sinful anger and we can ask that question, what do I need to repent of in myself? Sometimes it is legitimate, righteous anger and we think, how do we need to confront and love maybe someone who has wronged us? And then sometimes it's that anger, the way that we respond to it is the way that the Lord has responded to it is to absorb it, that we might forgive as we've been forgiven. No one's a more beautiful picture than that of that than Martin Luther King Jr. 
And he's got a sermon called Strength to Love. And here's how he says it. And I'll close with this. He says, while abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. That's a man who has taken his anger to the cross and has seen how the Lord, instead of exploding on sinners like you and me, has absorbed it, has taken the consequences of what it deserves, that he might meet us with peace and say to us, child, your sins are forgiven. Be angry no more. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would meet us in these ways tonight. We pray that where for those of us who are really wrestling with anger, either outwardly it's clear where we're losing our tempers and roommates and girlfriends, boyfriends, friends, parents. Lord, would you meet us in that anger? Would you help us get to the bottom of it? Would you get us the help that we need through counseling, through safe friends? Lord, other, others of us are, are, are angry and we don't even know it or, or we can't admit it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would meet us and show us that even if we're not losing our temper all over the place, anger like a crockpot is simmering in us. And Lord, would you meet us in that place in our bitterness, maybe even in our depression, which is often just anger turned inward. Lord, would you meet us in our anger? Would you heal us by your cross? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.